This is the TFT Podcast. I'm Matt, and that's not Ryan. It's Jordan. Jordan, you piss upon my candle, so proving you're a fake. Matt, you are so special. You have the talent to make me feel like dirt. <laughs> I I hope not. I hope no one can makes you make you feel like dirt, uh, unless it's Dirt by Alice in Chains. That's the record that we are talking about. The uh, second studio album from the Seattle-based mm, what heavy metal. Uh, early pre-grunge um sludge metal hard rock i've heard i mean exactly what genre this this uh band is and this record is is probably uh, a matter for debate and kind of thinking about why we care about a genre is probably a matter for some debate as well but it it is an outlier sort of like tori amos who we covered last week it is kind of an outlier in the mtv uh era of alternative rock and grunge and uh is is um very interesting for that reason it also was very popular it peaked at number six on the uh billboard charts now and and may i add it rocks fucking hard (laughs) it rocks very fucking hard um yeah uh harder than a lot of than a lot of grunge or or uh, alternative rock. And there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot to say about that. I have some questions for you musically, um, that I want to, to, uh, ask you about this album. Now, when we talked about rumors, um, Pete Fenzel, who was uh, on that episode, uh, if memory serves correctly, uh, pointed out that everything on Fleetwood Mac's rumors could be interpreted to be about, uh, love, to uh, you know, betrayals and multiple affairs and and uh, the dynamics of that band could could be about like the band and the particular things that they were going through, or it could be about co- cocaine. Um, on on Allison Chains, uh, dirt. Literally everything is about heroin. It's, yeah, yeah, all... it's like it, it, it could be about heroin addiction, or maybe about heroin addiction, or alternatively about heroin addiction. <laughs> well, it could be it could be about the uh, the grandiose uh, part of heroin addiction. It could be about the destitute um, and you know uh, very depressed part of heroin addiction. It could be about the hopelessness of heroin addiction, or it could be about the exaltation of heroin addiction. Uh, except the one song that's about Vietnam. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. that's really we're gonna go into that i think it's fascinating but uh but yeah finish your thought well so uh i i just offer that to you as a um as an interpretive key uh as you go you go into it now we often remark on what the correct occasional use for the the music that we talk about is whether it's a good workout album um basically because i guess that is like as uh as childless people in our 30s that's all ryan ryan and i do we work and we work out um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so uh, uh you know so that that comes into it a lot but like what what would you say in in the course of an average person's average day your average knowledge worker let's say their average day uh what activity do you think pairs well with dirt that's it you know i think that the ethos of the band is contrary to the ethos of that question because it's a very uh big r romantic kind of album in that it wants you to believe that your experience is not a typical experience that like it, it's sort of the 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 epic journey of the self in certain ways uh through through some nasty nasty circumstances so when you say the average knowledge worker i don't know but i can tell you my use cases for it which are very particular one uh this is a fantastic album to be 16 years old to uh if you if you can manage it um i I don't really remember what i used it for at the time but i know that it meant a a heck of a lot to me uh two this is a wonderful commuting album if like me you sometimes enjoy being dressed up in like you know in a suit uh wearing your kind of like 
uh, coastal latte sipping elite uh, sophistication on your sleeve and on your face and everything. And your hair is going a little bit and your waistline is going a little bit. And you have some decent over your headphones that prevent your music from being heard by everybody else. And then you have something uh, just like annihilatingly bleak turned up to ear damaging volume. And you're sort of uh, slowly riding the escalator down in Grand Central uh, through a giant crowd of people. And every now and then you sort of like make eye contact with somebody and think to yourself, they don't know that this is what I'm listening to. They're probably not guessing that this is what I'm listening to. Right. Which is probably like, I think that the core impulse there is a very dark and uh, and dangerous one. But dipping into it as far as blasting Alice in Chains is not dangerous to do. You know, they're like, there are much worse ways that that impulse could be uh, carried out. I, I suppose. I mean, I think that there, well, you mean some of the the more antisocial elements of the of the kind of the Alice in Chains ethos, but like I think that there actually is there is a kind of normative value to the idea of like not sharing your private thoughts all the time with the public in every situation, <laughs> you know? Oh, and- no, 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 that's, that's, that's very true. But what I'm saying is here, a big part of the thought that I'm having is like, I have a dirty, twisted secret. And it's like hard rock about metal, about heroin addiction, which is not all that dirty <laughs> or twisted, right? But like, I, I feel like that could take you to some nasty places if you, if you let it go far enough. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, if you went out and actually tried to acquire some secrets that were, were dirty or twisted, Twisted, uh, in sure. order- if you're like nobody knows on this escalator that I am blasted out of my mind on 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 heroin, right? That would be a problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Like, uh, yeah, no one knows about my uh, pro- prolific career as a serial killer uh, as I go about my you know corporate stooge job or something something like that. Yeah, th- that that we don't. Uh, but that's that's exactly what it is, though. You know, because you, you always talk about watching shows like Law and Order SVU and in some way wanting to identify with the killer. And I think about Dexter, right? The first season of Dexter back when it was really good. And these little moments where Michael C. Hall would kind of walk into his uh, to his job and make boring small talk with his coworkers. And there'd be this little like uh, feral eyed grin on his face as he turns away. And like they don't know what he got up to last night. And the emotion that I feel like he's having at that moment is the emotion that I get a lot of uh, blasting this or similar music during my commute. I want to pick up on this, but let's pause for a moment and give uh, the listeners an opportunity to listen for themselves. So uh, you can pause this podcast and come back after you have listened to Allison Chain's Dirt, uh, and we will resume our conversation after this word from our commercial sponsor. Matt, do you have intractable, emotional, social, medical problems? Fuck you. I hurt. <laughs> are, are prescription painkillers just not doing it anymore? I mean, I've tried them all in mass quantities and they don't do a thing for me anymore. Are you open to experimenting with a behavior that, while it feels really good and will kind of jack up your neurotransmitters with some positive things, is not necessarily good for you? And the more you do it, the more you're going to be hurting in the morning? Well, I mean, as long as it gives me a little temporary relief from the misery that is my life. Have you considered screaming? What? It's so affordable, too. Just scream to your heart's content at the top of your lungs in beautifully tuned parallel fourths. (laughs) This message has been brought to you by the Scream Council, serving America's scream needs since 1776. (laughs) And we're back. Jordan, I have a question. Oh, I I hope you do. (laughs) This this dirt with its uh, opening riff in seven... Uh, with its uh, harmonically, it's like dense harmonic uh, minor second uh, chord movements with its uh, tight harmony between two lead vocalists with its, uh, you know, asymmetrical riff based construction. Um, Is this a prog rock album? Hmm. I would... I know that I have to say it's a qualified yes. I think that the qualification is that this is sort of the the through a glass darkly prog. This is this is a reg rock, regressive rock. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Because prog rock has all of those types of musical complexity, but it also has a first of all generally like a a positive view on the world. Uh, that's like what the progress is, right? There is a sense of forward motion. Um, and 
coming along with that, it tends to have lots of different emotional states that are kind of visited at various times over the course of the album. Whereas here, I think that although if you just read the lyrics, it seems like the album is all over the place. The the sonic envelope and the basic palette is so monotonous and uniform that like only one or two of those personalities or ideas about what this experience is like are treated seriously. And the rest are treated with brutal, like uh, crushing irony just because of the way that they scream it, you know? So prog rock albums are going to be more all over the place than dirt is. They're not going to sound as unified. Uh, They're going to be cheerier generally. And, And I think this is probably fairly significant the lyrics to Dirt are actually about something, whereas the lyrics to all prog rock, album, prog rock albums are about random nonsense. <laughs> right. Or about your latest Dungeons & Dragons campaign or something. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, I mean, or they're actually about communism, or they're about the band, or about the collapse of a, of a relationship, or maybe about heroin addiction, but, uh, <laughs> but mainly about Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, yeah, screaming through the ice fields! <laughs> yeah, although... although three, four, like five. Feeling. One, two, yeah. three, four, five. Uh, the mage casts a spell! Two, three, four, five. Yeah, no, this is not, this is not that. This is sort of actual self-hatred, unmediated by uh, uh, unmediated by like fantastical tropes of of like uh, high fantasy or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, or or by a sense of possibility, which again is a, the thing that you often find in most prog rock. I don't know of any like emo depressive prog rock albums. Well, it's okay. So the, I mean, this is an interesting thing for me, right? Like the idea of prog rock is that there's there is this kind of there's this virtuosic joy. There's this sense of possibility in pushing the boundaries as far as, uh, you know, uh, with time signatures or song structures or uh, 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 virtuoso guitar playing or testing the patience of the listeners in various kinds of ways, um, that there there is, a, uh, as you say, a kind of hope in that. There's a, it's almost peppy, uh, a lot of it. And, and this is not peppy, but there is a lot of work required to make something, e- even though it's, it, it is kind of a trudge, right? Like, um, it takes a lot of work to make something this, uh, uh, intricately constructed and this sort of virtuosically difficult. Um, though it's not, I suppose like the riffs, the, and the soloing is not like super guitar heroics, uh, you know, that, that you would get in like in very complicated math rock or something like that. But like even just to count some of these songs is, you know, requires a full, uh, requires your full attention. Do you feel like there's a disjunction there, right? Between just the level of effort between the kind of the ethos of depression and the level of effort required to, to make something that is intricate and complex. I mean, maybe, right? Like it, you, you, you do have to wonder, uh, where is it all getting you, right? What's the, what's the line from no country for old men? Like if you're, if your code brought you to this, what good was the code? Right. Like that, uh, that if, uh, you, you've read that, um, Oh, was it in Rolling Stone or something like the the final posthumous profile of Lane Staley uh, about him like being found in a hotel room, eighty pounds as like he's six foot two or something like that, right? He hasn't talked to his family in days. Uh, he hasn't talked to them in days in years or something like that. Like he'll he'll sort of surface for a day every couple of months and then be be gone forever. Um, so. And that's when the band is, although it still like technically exists, it hasn't been producing music. So eventually, this conflict between the the heroin addiction and the kind of uh, the joy in creative complexity for creative complexity's sake, like heroin won, right? Uh, and there's definitely a tension there, right? But whether that tension is productive of art, right? Maybe let me turn the question around to you. Does the presence of this overwhelming concern with, like, you know, the psychic death of, uh, of heroin addiction and the, the screaming and all that stuff, all of the kind of non-progressive aspects of it, make it a more interesting album than if it was just, you know, uh, Tales of the, the Transcendental Oceans or whatever that yes thing is called? Right. Like, uh, yes. I mean, I think it does make it more interesting. And to me, it's interesting in the way that, like, 
Though, I don't know, I guess like uh, uh, Kublai Khan, uh, a vision in a dream, a fragment, right, um, is more uh, is more proggy than a lot of, <laughs> you know, than a lot of the the lyrics here. But but your in- invocation of capital R English romanticism, this sort of uh, the, the role of an artist as like um, a, a sort of voyager, a voyager of the soul. And like, by the way, you know, they they were were all high as a kite as well well no they weren't all high as a kite a number of them were uh were um high as a kite uh that um you know that it 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 has that that sort of thing as well you're sort of watching um whether you're watching kind of coleridge and laudanum uh or whether you're you're uh watching lane staley and and heroin you're kind of like we we've talked before about this kind of like beautiful this kind of supernova element this kind of beautiful element to the uh this beautiful element to the supernova that is very compelling even though you might question morally what exactly it is you're you're looking at or sort of getting off on uh aesthetically um or in terms of your you know uh, i mean in terms of your appreciation it's one thing to be to be uh, sorry yeah uh, I, well my my response to that was going to be like the interesting thing about dirt i think vis-a-vis uh vis-a-vis xanadu is that like the moral judgment is baked into dirt you know uh when when you have the lyric in um uh, sick man, I think it is. No, uh, no, drug of choice. Or is like, uh, uh, it, it ain't so bad, right? But the way that it is performed, it, like, oh yes, it absolutely is so bad. There is no question of that. So, uh, although they are kind of like romanticizing their own experience or or his own experience, whatever it is, of being a junkie and the grandiosity there, right? And the sort of the intense places it takes your soul to go through this, they're at the same time saying that this is the worst thing that you could do. You know, it's a, it's, it's a very almost like almost moralizing uh, after school, especially kind of tone. Uh, I, I feel like it, it sometimes takes, it's the most anti heroin heroin album that I've ever come across. <laughs> well, fair. The, yeah. Except that, except for a, a lot of the soundtracks to like after school specials with songs called like heroin is bad or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even more, I, maybe I guess even more anti heroin than that. I, I, I uh, like, um, I think you're right about that. I would add to that, though, the perspective that it's not just the the kind of the manifest content of the album that we have to be concerned with. I think that there's a whole kind of rock star glamour um, mm. and a kind of the, the milieu that the album is released into, that rock concerts take place in, that big arena tours take place in, right? And I think some of the glorification aspect comes from that, right? Comes from the sort of fame and fortune uh, and all of that. Yeah, even if the, the manifest content Content of the songs themselves has has um, a lot of abject misery and doesn't really pull its punches. It happens in a in a context where um, there is this sort of grandiose element to to it that maybe mitigates uh, to a certain extent some of that uh, hard nosed reality. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely right because they are uh, when you're talking about genre again, sort of. Speaking in the first person, I know that for me, I was told that Alice in Chains was another grunge band, and I didn't question that back in the day. You know, uh, coming back to it now, uh, where I feel like there's, you can find interviews where they talk about how they started out classified as metal, and they've come back to being classified as metal after going through all of these different uh, different bins. And metal really seems to be the right classification. But if you put them in grunge next to Nirvana, right, uh, then sort of being as miserable as you can in a public way where you're not trying to kind of glamorize the the misery is the way of being a rock star at that particular moment and does have a glamour to it. So yeah, it's uh, maybe against its own best intentions, it ends up glorifying the lifestyle that it's basically a, uh, you know, 
a vicious satire on. I, I you know, I, like let's talk about this in relationship to grunge because I think it's an I think there's a kind of an interesting thing there. Like your your the comparison with with Nirvana I think is is an instructive one because despite all the the kind of the nastiness and actually when we did Nevermind uh on this podcast um maybe even almost a year ago the uh the uh, it produced a kind of a, a series of discussions among the writers and overthinking thinking it, some of which we published on the site in the form of think tanks. Um, and one of the things that Pete pointed out, Pete Fenzel pointed out, um, was the the pervasive he called uh, he called Nirvana nasty, like they like uh, like Kurt Cobain had a mean streak. And and I think the kind of the nastiness, the kind of the the sense of um, it, it, it probably stems from a, a kind of corrosive hopelessness um, about about life. But I, I would say that that with uh, Kurt Cobain, his lyric writing is so good that um, th- there's almost this like Oscar Wildean sense of cleverness of like the clever the clever put down except it's the clever put down of hope and the clever put down um the clever put down of life um here right uh here that's that's not the case um it's there's there's not really a lot of joy in the kind of the verbal construction um of of the songs though what it does have is a very strong sense of a sort of hypocritical uh, a hypocritical society um, in Junkhead. The second verse begins. Uh, seems so sick. It's referring to uh, heroin addiction or heroin use. Uh, seems so sick to the hypocrite norm running their boring drills. But we are an elite race of our own. The stoners, junkies, and freaks. And like, there's this sense of sort of outsider position that I think is a very grunge. Uh, is a very grunge thing, and there's a sense of um, sort of derision uh, and a, a longing for kind of a, a, a sort of um, sociopathic longing for destruction of the the hypocrite norm um, that I think it shares with with the grunge sensibility a lot. Yeah, that's interesting because like. That's that's the same passage, I think, that I was talking about earlier, where, like, on the one hand, yes, but the delivery of it, to me, holds that pose up as ultimately hollow, you know, um, and you you can kind of go back and forth between different songs in this, where it seems as if maybe uh, being this outsider junkie freak, right, is good, uh, an elite of our own, but then you then have something like, uh, like Godsmack, where you know, the what in God's name have you done, right? Doesn't feel insincere. It's it's saying like this was a really dumb thing that you that you signed up for by sticking the needle in your arm. And I think of a, a quote from Lane Staley that uh I don't remember when he gave it, but I, I read it again in that like that sort of obituary piece where he says, uh this is in like ninety six, so maybe four years after the album comes out, that drugs worked for me for years. Now they've turned against me and I'm going through hell. Yeah. Right. So that like, to me, I don't know how true this is, but the way I always think of it is that uh, being a heroin addict is something that probably is really awesome right up until it is terrible and then it's too late. Right. Uh, I read something recently where someone was saying that the reason that people become addicts is that up until the point where it is a problem, it's not a problem. So you think, oh, I can do this one more time. Right. Uh, And like... To me, the the portrait of outsiderness, junkiness that comes across in dirt is like falling down that well already. So they can remember what it was like when they were like, oh, yeah, uh, the only reason that people don't do heroin all the time is because society, man, right? And uh, yeah, sure, it's bad for you, but then so is society, man. And now they're like looking up at that as this distant memory of a, a kind of life they cannot get back to and laughing at how they could possibly have been so naive about it. 
Uh, not that it ever comes down on society's side, right? Like there's no, uh, there's no Mr. Snow character in, in Carousel to sort of show you what the, the, the good bougie life would have been had you been able to, to toe that line. Right. But like, uh, I, I don't think that it is even as accepting of the outsider as say Nirvana is. And Nirvana is not particularly right. Like for Nirvana, self-hatred is almost that, uh, that pit that heroin addiction is for Alice in Chains. Actually, I had a question for you uh, based on this sort of grunge discussion, which is thinking back to the Nirvana conversation, also the Nine Inch Nails conversation that we had, um, and Pearl Jam, right? Who is it that Alice in Chains is angry at? Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is a sort of interesting, this is an interesting thing. I mean, it's sort of, uh, yeah, uh, it's not dad, right? Because, like, dad is a Vietnam hero, you know? And, yeah, dad, dad comes across better than anything else on the album, to yeah, be honest. Yeah, really. And, and it's not, I mean, it's not exactly, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think there's room, I think there's room for nuance in your, like, I, I, like, I hear and sort of, uh, 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 I really hear your, your point about how this is very far down, uh, very far down the well from the kind of the early moments of the early moments of exaltation. Um, I, I think those things exist in dialogue in the, I mean, in my, you know, my, uh, understanding of, uh, from the people who I have know who have had, uh, uh, substance addictions is that there is a, uh, there is a kind of, um, yin yang, uh, situation between kind of grandiosity and destitution, right? And that, and and it's not like there's a time for grandiosity and then later a time for destitution. It's like they're both. Uh, I think they're sort of both always there, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that that like so this is like uh, it, it is in um, Junkheaded. It is sort of this this kind of outsider rebel pose is heavily ironized but it's also sincerely believed right mm-hmm. I, I i would i mean i would put the i don't know i i, I would put it maybe a little a, a little closer to the to the kind of the sincere uh intention of the song may, maybe than you were and 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 sort of propose that it's an amalgam um an amalgam of of the two things. So the thing, uh, the thing that's missing in any of this discussion, right? Like is a sense that it could have gone differently, you know, like I suppose for Pearl Jam, you know, she might not have walked slow across the young man's room and said, I'm ready for you. You know, like, uh, in, in Nirvana's case, the, the, you know, I don't know, maybe Polly could have stayed home that day or something like that, right? Like, there's a sense that, like, though circumstances have come to a very bad pass, um, they're bad in the context of the possibility of them maybe having been good, right? Uh, And with this, I, I don't think there is a possibility that it ever could have been good, right? Like, another another thing this borrows from capital R romanticism is the idea that there are artists like capital A artists, um, who don't belong in society, who can't, who really can't hang, uh, with the normals, right. With your, with your sort of, uh, massive humanity teaming down the, the escalators of grand central and who have to kind of have these, um, these exalted these uh, experiences that lead to exaltation and destitution um the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling uh, in the words of the preface to lyrical ballads um and also sort of emotion recollected in in tranquility uh by which i mean uh, re- recollected when high on uh on opioids so uh, right so the the thing that i think the anger is at is almost a force that's like fate or destiny or, or something like that. Um, it's a, it's a kind of anger that is not, uh, that can't be that it's, it's a kind of anger that's all the more corrosive because it can't be focused at a particular, uh, a particular person, even oneself, um, who's done bad. Uh, what do you think of that? 
I know. I think that's really, really interesting, and I think, I think, quite profound. I feel like the song that gets the closest to this is uh, is "Hate to Feel," where there are a few different lyrics in that that span time in interesting ways. So um, I'm thinking specifically of uh, in in sort of the the pre-chorus where he says, uh, you know, New Orleans got to get uh, on jeans that's saying pin. Cushion medicine, I always heard it as tradition medicine, like traditional medicine. Um, but at any rate, used to be curious, now the shit's sustenance. So he's talking about like being in a city where he knows he has a hookup and going and getting the heroin. But uh, sort of in that impulse of going to get the thing, where earlier in that in that line it says, lucky me, now I'm set. You know, I know exactly what I need to do now. He remembers the point at which it was just a sort of just a dabbling, right? And he's at this point now and there's no window between them, right? He's not kind of saying like, oh, if only I had done something different, just that like, this is the logical consequence of that, right? And then the next thing, all this time I swore I'd never be like my old man. What the hey, it's time to face exactly what I am. Now, part of that is because man and am like almost sort of rhyme, but I think it's really interesting that it's not what the hey, it's time to face exactly what I was, right? Because it's all this time I swore. That's in the past and continuing, right? Like a, a continuous object uh, action in time all the way up to the present, right? right? But at the same time, uh, he's facing what I am Right is also facing what he was all along. All this yeah. time when he was swearing, it's implicitly false. So he's been just like his father this entire time, right? And at no point was there an option really to be anything else. He can acknowledge it or not. It's actually <laughs> in a curious uh, the ethics of it are Spinozan ethics, because for Spinoza, you don't have free will. You can either recognize that uh, God has set everything in motion for you, and then you'll be relatively cheerful, or you can try to act like you have free will, and that will make you miserable. Um, and here, it's sort of like you can realize that you always had this heroin addiction sort of faded for you. You're always going to get to here, and that will make you miserable. Or you can try to pretend that you're something else, and you will still be just as miserable. But I, at least this way, you're right. This is a, a whimsical digression and maybe a bit of a rat hole, but I've always thought of that Spinozan uh, kind of bargain in opposite terms, right? Like, I've always thought that, like, if I don't have free will, I can at least tell myself a story about my having free will, which I find comforting and a a decent way of dealing with my life, you know? Uh, And that, like, uh, if, if it doesn't matter... Uh, if if you accept the kind of the moral implications of not having free will being like I have no moral culpability because I don't really make choices, then really there's no downside to telling myself whatever narrative of uh, of free will of myself of my choices that I find most pleasurable and allows me to get through the day uh, a little you know a little a little easier. Um, I suppose that would all be predetermined under that, uh, under that rubric though, you know, uh, and that like, but behaving as though I have free will is, you know, a bit of relief, um, from the knowledge of my powerlessness, not, uh, n- not a kind of, uh, not a kind of misery in, in sort of turning against my true nature. Right. Yeah, it's it's almost a uh, a Keanu Reeves in the Matrix kind of moment, right? Where like uh, taking the blue pill, believing that you have free will, is eating the delicious steak in the restaurant, whereas like uh, confronting the reality of the situation uh, and seeing the desert of the real, right? Like, what does that actually get you? Um, well, it gets you it gets you truth, right? And I do think that uh, that this is another big R romantic kind of concern and conceit that Allison Chain seems to to. Share. That, like, uh, the world of appearance is not preferable to the world of essence, even though essentially what you are is a junkie, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to, to feel much as you do. The question, I suppose, that, uh, that this band would ask of us is not, what is it that you are addicted to that you have not fessed up to yourself that you're actually addicted to? I mean, yeah, that, that is very after school, especially, right? Like that's the, that's a, about the, um, the, that it reminds me of the parable of the, the rich man who, uh, that led to the, um, 
uh, simile of like it's easier for a, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Like because the, the some of the exegesis that I have uh, that I've read on that passage um, focuses on uh, the man so, uh, focuses on the idea that uh, Jesus is giving specific advice to this man and asking him what he's addicted to. Um, Mm -hmm. And it has to do with the way it has to do with the way the, the punchline uh, says, he says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and then, then come back uh, and we can talk. And uh, the next verse is the man went away sad because he had many possessions, right? It, his sadness was, was because of his, his possessions, um, you know, not because of this advice in general or not, you know, not because he was sort of unable to, this is a guy who was sort of addicted to the things, uh, the things that, that he had. And, and, you know, the, the, the point, the kind of the after school, especially point that, that was drawn from it, at least in the, the interpretation that, that, uh, I read of it had to do with like, uh, yes, everyone is, is, um, uh, everyone is sort of holding on to something that sort of keeps you from like spiritual growth or kind of a greater, uh, you know, a greater kind of uh, cosmic level of happiness. Um, and, and it's a slightly different thing, uh, for everybody for, sure. you know, had it been a different guy, it might've been different advice. Now you don't get more after school, especially, uh, than, <laughs> than Jesus. Right. And that, that right, this right. is a, this is a, this is an interesting, um, you know, this is a kind of interesting, uh, social project that you're uncovering here in dirt. Um, and it's, you know, it's the, the difference of course, is that, uh, Jesus like, uh, like King Crimson is progressive, right? (laughs) (laughs) There, there's a point to it. Whereas I feel like, uh, like Alice in Chains doesn't have any, any hope to offer you. It's just sort of a, a exquisitely observed chronicle of a very particular, uh, psychic moment that I have been lucky enough never to experience. And, uh, and I hope that, you know, I hope everyone listening that you haven't had to go through this stuff. It doesn't sound super fun. The, yeah, there's no good thief. There's no right. Like, there's no good thief to like turn to on the cross and say like, today uh, we will dine in paradise. Now, the interesting thing though is that um, it's so easy, I think, to listen to this album and think of it as one person's unified psychic experience. Oh, there you go. Yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, um, but it, but it's not right. And that that verse that I just quoted about the father, you know, all this time I swore I'd never be like my old man, right? Are we to assume this is the same father as the rooster? What ain't gonna die? Because definitely, when I was first hearing this, like I sort of thought that, and I was kind of thinking to myself um, in a sort of you know half-ass exegetical way. Oh, I guess probably his father must have gotten super addicted to heroin while he was in Vietnam. It's understandable, of course. You know, a lot of people did drugs over there, and a lot of people had good reason to. But that's the thing in his father that he doesn't want to be like. And then you sort of go back to it after the fact. You're like, oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. It's it's two different fathers. Right. They're two different people in the band. More than two, but they're two main personalities. Lane Staley is like the singer and usually the lyricist. And then uh, Jerry Cantrell, right, is the guitarist and usually the composer. Um, and that's part of where the interesting sort of multivalence of the, the heroin addict experience comes from that. Like, I, I think uh, Godsmack is a Cantrell song. So when he's saying, what in God's name have you done? He's like, he's making the singer like say this about himself, right? In a way. Uh, hey, buddy, your heroin addiction is messing with my prog rock band. <laughs> hey, buddy, you got your heroin chocolate in my prog rock peanut butter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, like your heroin, heroin in my peanut butter. It's wrecking the peanut butter. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, yeah. Um, you want to talk about? You want to talk about? Oh, uh, before we talk about Rooster, because I, I mean, it's it's a really interesting song, and I think it's different. I, you know, uh, it is close to the peppiest song um, on on the album, which is interesting to say that. Like, here they come to snuff the rooster. Uh, yeah. Is the chorus? It's it's curious to call that peppy but i think it's straightforward in a way and has a um has a kind of straightforward conflict with a hope of uh of prevailing right and and indeed we know that jerry cantrell senior uh did return from from vietnam we know that from uh like his biography so the um 
you know, there is a, a sort of hope that's absent from a lot of the, uh, that's absent from a lot of the, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of the kind of more heroiny um, sort of lyrics. But the the other thing I, I just kind of want to point out uh, about this is that, um, like, there's no sex in this rock and roll band, right? There's just drugs and rock and roll. Uh, it the, and and this yeah. this has been something that. Uh, that I think situates it as a grunge band for me, that this was really not, um, this was really not a part of a lot of, uh, a lot of grunge, right? Like, uh, uh, Kurt Cobain's lyrics are almost monastic, uh, almost like ascetic in, in, uh, ascetic, I should say, uh, ascetic is like, <laughs> yeah, ascetic is like vi- vinegary, which I <laughs> they suppose were, they, were. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't, yeah, they weren't not. Um, but ascetic, I mean, like in, in the sense of asceticism and kind of denial of the flesh, uh, and a kind of mortification of the flesh. I, I and like his own, um, um, his own sexual urges he sees as as a sort of uh personal manifestation of the of the disease of the larger society uh for eddie vetter it's a threat from without it's a kind of malevolent uh adult threat that the the sort of teenage uh speaker of a lot of the songs can't really withstand like doesn't have the affective capacity to um to like integrate uh in a non-traumatic way and uh i I mean and uh you know i don't know and nine inch nails it's just uh it's all you know i don't know it's it's that he hates his ex-girlfriend right like it's (laughs) you know like i mean nine inch nails is by the standards of grunge pretty pretty sexual music actually pretty racy stuff right um here it's it's totally uh it seems to be totally absent i mean there's a little bit uh of references to what might be like a girlfriend or or you know there is like uh uh images of like in the womb you know uh stuff like this so like we know that it is not that like reproduction is a thing uh in this universe but it's really not it's really not part of this uh it's really not part of this experience it's really a kind of man versus self or like man versus you know uh uh man versus heroin i guess um, sure. sort of sort of album and this this was i mean just as my kind of final note on the connections of this to grunge and to kind of the the music of of the time um this really stood out to me as like uh as as an aspect um as an aspect of this this music and as an aspect of this time, it is certainly not the case uh, of like the popular music of 2017 that it is sexless, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and it seems this this pure and and it's been true of pop music, you know, in what at whatever level of vulgarity or. Uh, or euphemism, right? It's it seemed true of of pop music forever, and it's it strikes me as a kind of a weird anomaly that there was this time, uh, w- there's time where there was no sex, but there was drugs and rock and roll, um, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah. Anyway, I mean, I wonder. There's there's probably a larger historical conversation to be had there because I feel like. Um, not all punk rock, but much punk rock is equally sexless. Um, and not all metal, but much metal is equally sexless. Like there, there's something about angry guitar rock that seems to invite a slightly different set of concerns. Uh, when sex or sexuality does come up, it's often problematized uh, in a certain way. Again, you can definitely point to cases where this is not true, like all the pop punk that was big, uh, like just after this, I guess, uh, was basically, you know, basically high school relationship music. So sex comes up there. Um, and definitely you can point to like 80s hair metal where a lot of the songs are very like um, grossly kind of acquisitively misogynistic you know um uh, yeah i mean are you are you are you kidding like axel rose wants you to to feel his serpentine (laughs) yeah yeah but like but but uh but i don't think that slayer uh gets into that too much you know 
um, like the, the the more aggressive kind of metal that's out there. And if you if I think about later metal bands, I can think of particular albums that I know where I'm like, yeah, you know, relationships are not a feature here uh, to the degree that there's lyrics at all. They're all done in Cookie Monster voice. Basically, this is music about guitar solos. And I feel like it, uh, like th- there's there's something that would make it seem tawdry if you brought it in. Uh, the other option you could take, of course, is to treat sex as if it is like really serious that you're going to be like. Like worshiping the goddess with your body or something like that. Um, and that brings you back into a progressive rock kind of space where I feel like metal is too cynical to, to go there. Um, so maybe maybe that's partially what's going on with Alice in Chains. I do think that the broader connection to grunge, though, is interesting because if you want to say that, like, um, the relationship that Nirvana has to punk might be similar to the relationship that Alice in Chains has to metal, right? Uh, Nirvana is not really a metal band most of the time, but it is definitely very sexless. So it's not just the case that Alice in Chains is metal and metal doesn't have room for sex anymore after the 80s. Yeah. Um, right. I, I'm, yeah, I was trying to think, I was trying to come up with an analogy, and I, I think the best I can come up with is that, that, uh, um, uh, uh, Guns N' Roses is to Alice in Chains. Um, by the way, uh, the, an earlier incarnation of, of Alice in Chains with almost none of the, the lineup that ended up with Alice in Chains was called Alice in Chains. Um, <laughs> Because of the like the the I guess they were younger then and and like someone's mom thought it, the uh, the uh, title was inappropriate because of its sort of uh, its reference to bondage and like uh, tying up women in chains. Um, yeah. The uh, so it was Alice in Chains, like Guns and Roses. So like I, I'm going to say that Guns and Roses is to Alice in Chains as um, as William Blake is to Samuel Taylor Coleridge. <laughs> Sure. You know, that like that like Blake is all about kind of the unfurling of the imagination and boundless possibilities and like taking pleasure in in uh sensation, even in kind of the derangement of the senses. Uh whereas whereas Coleridge is like, you know, more laudanum, please. And yeah, is, yeah. and is you know, um despite some of the fantastical elements in Kublai Khan, for example, like uh he doesn't really live in Kublai Khan, he lives in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and, I mean, even with Kublai Khan, like the the TLDR of that is the problem with opium dreams is that they end. <laughs> right. Exactly. And uh, uh, right. And you know who Allison Chains is mad at? He's mad at like a person from Porlock that you know knocks on the door <laughs> when yeah. uh, uh, when you're trying to have your your nice dream. Uh, in other words, um, like uh, 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 Guns N' Roses was dancing with Mister Brownstone, but Allison Chains is kind of trudging um yeah, yeah. with uh with mr brownstone so um so okay let's talk let's talk about a little bit uh let's talk about a little bit about rooster like do, do you feel what do you feel like is the the relationship between the the writer of the song and kind of the persona of the song it's told in the voice of the father in vietnam um uh, you know aid found a way to kill me yet eyes burn with sting and sweat uh, every path leads me to nowhere um wife and kids household pet uh it's interesting it's a little like uh a man in the gray flannel suit but it's like man in the camo fatigues right like uh there's there's a kind of um social conformity societal conformity uh that um that leads that leads you to the jungles of vietnam uh i suppose the bullets scream to me from somewhere this is told in the first person as though it is uh being sung by the father um and and yet it's be, it's being written it's being written by the son in the context of this sort of album and in the context of like you know 20 years later uh uh, two decades later, what, you know, what's, what's going on? Um, do you feel like this is an admiring relationship with the father? Do you feel like there's a, uh, that it's experienced at, well, uh, sorry, I'm not going to ask leading questions. I'll ask you just what, what you think. What do you, what, what do you think of this relationship between the, the, uh, uh, heavy metal singer and the father in Vietnam? I mean, it's, 
it doesn't come across as positive all that much just because the overwhelming milieu of the album is so negative. The way that I always experienced it, and I don't know that I necessarily have many textual hooks to hang this on, but the way that I kind of thought about it is this is somebody who like never got along with the father. Um, and yet when they think back to what their father went through, they they come to a um, not exactly a grudging uh, respect, but a sort of hard won respect like, oh, this explains all the ways that you are, you know. And this this is an enormous thing for anyone to have to to deal with and to live through. And you did the thing that you could do, which is not to win, but to survive, right? And that's partially the broader narrative of the Vietnam War, where, like, you know, America lost it. Uh, and a successful person who fought there is one that managed not to die there and to come back home relatively free of psychic trauma, right? Um, which is why sort of the, the heroic refrain is – he ain't going to die like that. That is the the only positive outcome that the entire album envisions really. Right. Is to to make it through. Um, so that that's the way that I always kind of thought about. Right. It. And that that is like it's it's the counterfactual uh, to where serious heroin addiction leads you. Right. Like it's the it's the. Um, you know, I, I don't know the the war it's, I don't mean to trivialize either thing by comparing them, but it is like, you, you can survive Vietnam. You can survive, I suppose, addiction and come out the other side and, and maybe you don't, you know, uh, and, and in this context, yeah, just merely surviving, right. Like right. is, is the best that, uh, the best that you, you can hope for. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Then, like, yeah. I think that that then plays in very interestingly to like certain sonic elements of the song, because again, we've been sort of, uh, mentioning this in passing without going into a lot of detail for an album that Robert Criscow said was like by real addicts, but therefore dumb. Alice in Chains is very, very smart about their song construction. Like they're really elaborately composed. You could do a lot worse if you wanted to learn how to arrange a rock song or to write one than to go through this with a fine tooth comb and see all the little moving parts. Um, so Rooster uh, comes as a very quiet point in a very noisy album. It's a lot slower. It's a lot softer most of the time. Uh, I would say that like one of the defining things about Alice in Chains is that they open their songs with a like a, a vocalization, whether it's the ah of them bones or the oh of uh, of rain when I die, or in this case, this very sort of faint. Right. Um, which almost seems like it could come out of the 70s. Right. It's a, a vocalization of another era kind of gives a once long ago in a in a Vietnam far, far away kind of framing to the whole story. Uh-huh. Right. And then there's all of this uh, not acoustic guitar, but compared to what you've been hearing, very, very, very non distorted and very soft guitar under the verse. Right. And then I think as you as you're pointing out, the poetry here is a lot more coherent. Right. Uh, it hangs together as a string of sentences that tell a story in a way that a lot of the songs purposely don't. Then you get to the chorus, right? And a bunch of things change. One, uh, you go from first person to third person, right? Uh, and then you also have the the distorted, powerful metal guitar come roaring in in this massive, massive way, right? So that uh, that survival... Or to a certain degree, the sort of the determination of this character of the rooster that he is going to survive no matter what, right, is treated as a heroic achievement, right? Uh, you know, the the music explodes with possibility in a in almost a progressive way, right there, on the sentiment that no, no, no. He ain't gonna die. Yeah. What is the uh, if you if you know it off the top of your head? Don't uh, no no need if you don't. But what is the the um, uh, chord progression there on here? They come to snuff the rooster. Is it flat three, flat seven, one, uh, or or something? I mean, tantamount to that. Um. Gosh, I don't know it. I want to say that it's um. 
with that being the tonic. So that sounds like four flat three one. Oh, okay. But that's but that's more of a melodic thing than a baseline thing, probably. So I, I I don't know. It would be interesting. What were you gonna say about it? Assume that it's the thing that you thought it was. Well, I uh I was gonna say that there is this kind of um uh, what I what I heard when those uh, uh, guitars come roaring in is a uh, a major chord, right? And that like it's not the tonic. I think it's in I you know I think it's like uh, you know in a minor mode or something like in the kind of rock and roll minor mode that a lot of these songs seem to be in. Um, but that uh, uh, that you you sort of land on like a big major flat three or maybe it's a big major four or something like that uh mm. that th- that gives it a sense that gives it that that sort of sense of of triumphalism and and is what manages to kind of glorify or lionize the the you know father's um uh, uh perhaps not grandiose but still somehow co- heroic military career like i i was sort of wondering about a certain a certain amount of anxiety uh maybe a, a certain amount of anxiety in the song about like actually facing sort of life and death being faced with with people who are actually trying to kill you versus like my generation and our Seattle rock bands like our Seattle yeah. grunge bands you know what i mean and i was sort of wondering i mean and maybe this is me projecting something something onto it because i don't necessarily have a a hook to hang this on but like the the um the like the parents' generation in grunge uh, comes in for a lot of criticism um, for being uh, conformist, for being insensitive to the point of a kind of emotional brutality, uh, for being actively malevolent in in certain instances, and that this is like the only this is the only one I could think that uh, that a little bit is like the only song from this era that I can think of in the kind of group that we're talking about where I can think it's like, good on you, dad, you know, like way, way to go. Like, uh, you know, say, (laughs) say what you will about the baby boomer generation. Right. Like, but, uh, they survived some difficult stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's totally fair. You know, uh, the rooster has like the Viet Cong coming from him. Uh, the only thing that are coming to snuff me is party drugs. So maybe there's a certain amount of kind of like anxiety there and uh, the sort of the the continued uh just just through juxtaposition it's not internal to the song at all but by putting this song on this album it's sort of like he's taking his dad aside and saying you know in a way the heroin epidemic is my generation's vietnam right <laughs> uh, like maybe this is a thing that we can bond together over beers later uh, about <laughs> the fact that we saw our best friends die sort of pointlessly um but in in my case it's uh it's my people's my generation's fault in a sense right whereas vietnam is thrust upon you here Right. Yeah. Um, the the uh, the the thing that I I want not to um, not to neglect before we we sort of call it on this episode is to talk a little bit uh, about the music and about all those kind of intricate moving um, those those intricate moving parts. We've talked to, we've talked a little bit about it. We've alluded to the kind of the the uh, uh, kind of chugging um, rhythms to to a certain amount of uh, formal experiment, not experimentation. It's I mean everyone knows what happens when you put a song in seven. Uh, it's um, it is a little off kilter. Like at this point, I, I guess it doesn't really count as, as experimentation per se, but, but uh, you know, some asymmetrical time signatures, some, some stuff we've, we've alluded to these things, but is there anything uh, a little deeper that you want to say about the kind of the, the musical um, content of this album, whether it's the kind of the, the close harmony vocals, which is an unusual thing, really distinctive for this band. Um, whether it's the, the, you know, use of the guitar riffs, whether it's the, the, uh, time signatures or harmonic content, anything like that, that, that we should not neglect to mention. Well, we should definitely talk about those close harmony vocals because yeah. it's so distinctive, and they're able to do it at full bellow, which is uh, which is pretty hard. What I think is maybe the most surprising thing about that to me is that it's not unique in rock, 
right? It's just unique in grunge. You can draw like a a straight line from this to the Beatles and then to the Everly Brothers before that, right? And I, I think that an Allison Chains cover of Wake Up Little Susie would be a thing of wonder and a joy forever, um, as would an Everly Brothers cover of, of Sick Man, for that matter, you know? Uh, but the the way that that seems to work is that typically it's a like a slightly abrasive interval uh, either a fourth or a minor third which is then made more abrasive by the vocal tone which is very very unwavering and sort of flat right um almost almost sounding auto-tuned avant la auto-tune and then sometimes that's joined with the electric guitar, so that rather than having a two-voice texture sort of tracing this melody, you have like a three-voice texture doing it. Um, a really prominent place that that happens is sort of towards the uh, the end of Sick Man on the uh, the sort of you get that going down in like parallel six three or six four chords or something like that, um, or mostly parallel in a in a way that would warm the heart of any counterpoint teacher you know um and that's again that's like that's hard stuff to do it's hard stuff to plan out um obviously they get pretty good at it i imagine it didn't take them too much time to uh to get any one of those little vocal passages going but it's just it's such kind of a, a powerful and distinctive move i do think it has something to do with why the the lyrical voice of the album sounds like it's all one person's experience despite the fact that if you track it even a little bit there are these two clear personalities sort of looking from inside and outside of the heroin addiction you might talk about the beatles there too right how like uh the close harmony maybe helps to blend together the john songs and the paul songs yeah i mean that right right that's that's sort of interesting that and and like harmony like choral unison is or i mean choral choral you know simultaneous singing right is the is that um, form of musical production that makes one voice out of many, uh, and and the way that that like the way that that functions in a band is is sort of an interesting um, sort of an interesting thing. Is there anything harmonically here? I heard a lot of like minor second movement in the bass lines and and stuff, which I guess is maybe normal for metal or normal for for uh, this this kind of thing. But it seemed a little. Uh, it, it seemed to eschew a lot of the more kind of arena friendly um, satisfactions that uh, metal can provide. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that uh, you know, I, struck me as interesting in listening to it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like there's metal and there's metal, right? And <laughs> there's there is like a characteristic metal harmonic palette, which is based around like... Um, certain arrangements of like, the pentatonic scale that uh, that like create a lot of minor chords um and often if you hear a song and you think like oh that's kind of metal uh just from the harmony like that might be what you're hearing and i think you definitely hear a lot of that here there's also a lot of like you know one four five one arena rocky stuff in metal but not in every metal band you know again the sort of the the edgier the sludgier the deathier you get the more of that uh characteristically metallic harmony you get the less of the more diatonic kind of stuff you tend to get and i feel like alice in chains falls pretty pretty far down on that spectrum um there i would say that is one thing that a lot of the grunge acts actually have in common although um i don't know have you guys talked about smashing pumpkins on here yet not Maybe yet that's the next one that's the next one we got to talk about because man oh man <laughs> but uh but yeah like there's definitely lots of metal stuff uh, similarly to the way that I was thinking about uh, the Everly Brothers when I was listening to the vocal harmonies this time through, I was thinking about the like the bluesiness of a lot of the guitar riffs here, which I feel like there's so much distortion and so much screaming and so much this and that, that you almost forget that it's blues until you force yourself to pay attention to it. So that opening riff in seven that you were talking about, the sort of like... Like, imagine that kind of swung, right? And imagine uh, imagine B.B. King or Muddy Waters uh, doing like talking blues over it and like do 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 do
it's always said that uh, that metal owes a great debt to the blues, and you can see it very clearly in something like Zeppelin. Alice in Chains still does, I would say, but it's it's like it's been refracted through metallic corridors for so long that the the sound of bluesiness is almost entirely lost. Yeah, it's I mean, right? It's the the overdrive of the guitars, the the kind of the the grungy distortion, and the the sort of ear splitting the ear splitting aspects of it, the, the kind of invitation of, um, the invitation of sonic mess, uh, that, that sort of obscures the bluesy roots, uh, of it a little bit, which is interesting. Cause I think of like, uh, blues as a sort of low down, you know, kind of grungy genre to begin with. So like how much more grungy must, must this have to be in order to obscure those roots a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Well, and then and then there's the line from Electra, right? How much how much more blood must these walls see? They'll see yours. I tell you that much. It's like every new generation is going to find a way to make it grungier <laughs> until until we have to abandon rock entirely for uh, for auto tuned R and B. Yeah, know? I mean that's well, and and I, I suppose that's what's that's what happened. I mean, I I I guess like kind of in. There was a lot of kind of selling out dialogue around the the. Uh, the grunge era, um, a lot of it focusing on the Seattle scene in particular, uh, and the bands that kind of didn't achieve a Pearl Jam level of success, or I, I should say, I guess a Nirvana level of success. Um, Pearl Jam seemed to like go on a mission to systematically dismantle their success once they, uh, once they had it, or maybe Eddie Vedder went on the mission. Um, uh, to uh, to dismantle their success, but the uh, you know the the um, the the standard line for something that is truly pathbreaking is is like oh if we could only just get a slightly more user friendly version of this we'd really have something you know we'd really be uh, we'd really be um, we'd really be cooking I think the the accomplishment here is that Allison Chains manages to get a uh, get an, a good. Uh, uh, like a, a, a statement with some integrity that manages to be user friendly or or at least accessible not not pleasant in every respect but but accessible um, at the same time and like there this music did have mass appeal it it you know charted on the the uh, in the single digits on the uh, billboard two hundred um, so you know i I am I'm impressed by that. I think it's a it's a pretty good aston- uh, accomplishment, uh, especially given the kind of the difficult, you know, biographical material that the the that goes into the writing of a lot of these songs, and the fact that like you know uh, they're probably pretty high, or you know some of them were probably pretty high while they were they were uh, uh, they were uh, doing it. That uh, actually recording the album, like it's a, it's a pretty pretty amazing. Uh, accomplishment um uh, i don't know do you have a final thought that you want to leave us with no i think that that's a good one you know it it really holds up if you uh if you're the kind of person who just listens to these without listening to the album definitely give this one a shot uh the the lead off track is fantastic i think that um my my favorite is probably uh i always get the titles confused probably sick man is like the the best in terms of being like an intricate and powerfully composed song uh wood is also super interesting very complicated weird way to end the end the album um maybe skip the second song if metal isn't really your thing that's like the uh the, the one that i tend to skip although it definitely has a place on the cd um you know their uh their pain can be your sonic good time so <laughs> treat yourself <laughs> excellent uh all right we'll be back with more overthink uh jesus more tft podcast i mean all the podcasts are are gonna be back you know eventually um except the ones that are gonna die uh <laughs> yeah, yeah so uh you know wherever whether whether we're uh um broadcasting from the river river dam whether we're broadcasting from down uh down into the hole whether we're broadcasting from inside an iron gland (laughs) please remember to keep it real